0: You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, what's up, Resonate? Good to see you guys. Um, We are in Luke chapter seven. We're gonna start in verse 18. So if you have your copy of scripture, you can turn with me there. Um, Before we get into that, uh, when I was a kid, um, I would uh, one of my one of my good friends, one of my best friends. Uh, his family won a car, uh, like from a, like a, a a raffle. And so, uh, as a kid, I just thought this was the coolest thing ever. That all of a sudden, my you know my friend's family uh, had had a brand new car, and they drove that thing around, and it was like um, this was always the the free car. And so. Um, and we treated it as such in high school. Um, but uh, that was kind of this, this moment. But earlier than that, before, uh, before we got to high school, um, I just remember thinking, like, this is just what happens to people. Like, you just win cars. And, uh, and that's just kind of a normal th- kind of thing. And so I, I remember, uh, so they had won it by, f- like, filling out this thing and dropping it into uh, that, you know, box. And you've seen them before, right? Those things where they raffle off a car and you can, you can sign your name and to win all this. And so what I started doing, thinking that that was just the normative way that, uh, that ultimately People got cars. Uh, I began to to fill those out in every place that I went to, and so like I remember going to uh, going to Burger King, and they had something like win a new car, and I would always fill those out, and um, and everywhere I would go, I would just fill those things out because I was sure that I was going to win this car. I was going to win whatever it is, um, and so what happened was uh, over the course of time, some weird things started to happen to my family, uh, like. Uh, we started getting like magazines that uh, that my parents didn't think that they ordered, and all of a sudden uh, we had our uh, our phone service change. And uh, and there was like various other things that started happening, and my parents could not figure out um, how it was that their phone service changed, that they started getting magazines that they didn't order, um, and and there was a few other things too. And then finally, um, my mom put it together, Keith, every time you're filling out one of those things, you're not signing up just to win a car, you're signing up to get these magazines, or you're signing up to change our phone service and all of this stuff. And it was this um, moment where they sat me down and said, no one ever wins cars except for your best friend right no one ever wins these things it is a trap to get you into some sort of a sales thing and then I began to realize um, that I was radically wrong and didn't apologize profusely for all the things that I had caused them to uh, have in transforming their phone service and magazines and and all kinds of stuff Um, but there was this moment where you know you think you're going for one thing and then all of a sudden it begins to realize that the thing that you thought you were actually doing isn't actually happening and I think that that happens Sometimes we talk about God, and then I think there's a moment in all of our lives where where there's this place where we have this expectation of what God is going to do. We have this expectation of what is going to happen. We have this thing um, that we really hope, and we have this desire, and we think this is this is what God does. He he delivers in these moments, and uh, and, and if you're like me, um, there's been moments in my life. Where, where I've been let down by God. There's been moments in my life where there's been some significant doubt. There's been moments in my life where I didn't think God was going to pull through. And there's been moments in my life where I thought God was going to do something, and he never did. And we're going to get to a po- portion of Scripture. And if you're like me, um, that, those moments are really difficult moments. Those moments where I thought you were going to do this, God. I thought this was going to happen, um, are are some of those most refining parts to our faith. And sometimes they draw us closer, and sometimes um, it really deeply pulls us away. Maybe you went through a dark season where God didn't show up in a place that you thought he was going to show up. And Luke 7, as we begin to preach through the book of Luke, this is not one of those passages that we would typically just uh, choose to get into. This is not one of those things, hey, I I want to preach a sermon, uh, so I'm going to go to this text and and we're going to preach through this text. Um, But I do think that this, uh, as I've gotten into this, this text that we're going to be in is one of the primary reasons that Luke writes his book. And so we've been talking about this idea that um, the story of Jesus is fulfilling the story of the entire world. That what is happening is we're coming to Jesus as he is. He's presenting himself and he's beginning to show us, this is who I am. And as a church, this is, we're walking through this and we've talked about um, the mission of God in the book of Acts and the person of Jesus and being able to say, do we take Jesus for who he is? And today we're going to have a very poignant moment um, between some significant um, people in the book of Luke where we begin to see this dramatic moment. I think it's dramatic um, in terms of what Jesus is doing in the people around him and what he does in some ways not meeting the expectations of the people around him. So today we're going to talk. Through, uh, through a story that's connected to a bigger story. So let me give you a little bit of b- the background and l- a few of the characters that are part of the story um, that we're going to walk through. Um, one is a guy named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, uh, or John the Baptizer, um, this is one of the things that he was known for, is his baptism of repentance. And so John was uh, the cousin of Jesus. They're born almost exactly the same time. He's six months older than Jesus. And um, John is... Uh, is a prophet john is an interesting guy he lives out in the wilderness he wears like camel skins um camel fur as his clothing um he eat locusts he eats locusts and uh and it says wild honey maybe that's just to get the locust down um but this is kind of his diet this is his location this is his dress and his message is one of repentance his message is one of being able to uh, you know repent and be baptized and this is uh it's just an interesting guy. He's probably part of this sect of people called the Essenes um, that were uh, kind of this set-apart group. Um, likely, it was that group of people that wrote uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so, um, and so about this time, um, we have this guy who's living out in the desert, um, wearing uh, a very unstylish attire, eating this strange diet of locusts and honey, and speaking truth to the establishment so the establishment that he's speaking to is, uh, is the ruler of the, of the Jewish people. His name is Herod Antipas. Um, interesting, if you type that in, it autocorrects cor- auto to antipasta. So that's just, uh, this is what I began to think through. I began to write that just all throughout my notes. So Herod antipasta. So uh, that's him, and he is the, the ruler of the Jews. He's come from the line of Herod. So you have Herod the Great, um, which is the guy who, uh, who went after Jesus as a baby. But this is the guy who's kind of um, after that, Herod Antipas. And, uh, a- and ultimately in the story, we're going to get to someone named uh, Herodias. Which is Herod's niece, and ultimately his niece becomes his wife, and it's a very complex situation. In fact, if you want to look at the uh, the landscape of the family, uh, just you know, take a day, take an Advil, and take a large sheet of paper because it is crazy when you talk about the Herodians. So um, that's what is happening in this, and what is going on is that uh, Herod Antipas um, has is ultimately he's um, he has a foreign wife, um, but he falls in love with his niece, Herodias. So this is the wife of his stepbrother, Philip, and he begins to uh, ultimately decide that he wants to take her as his wife, so he sends the foreign princess back and takes Herodias uh, as, his, um, as his wife. John the Baptist says that uh, this is absolutely uh, wrong and begins to speak out against this. It's not necessarily him speaking out against the moral morality of this, but more specifically, if this is someone who is to be the king of the Jews... He is absolutely unfit for this role. He is absolutely unfit for this. He's proclaiming that Jesus is the king of the Jews and not Herod Antipas, and that being able to see this action and this behavior is the clear indicator that Jesus is the king of the Jews and not Herod Antipas. And this is something that makes Herod very angry. So, what he does is he takes, and as you can imagine, he locks John the Baptist up. Now, if we fast forward, there's going to be a moment that comes later on in the story where, uh, where Herodias um, dances for, uh, for Herod Antipas, and ultimately he is inebriated, and he says to her, um, uh, basically gives her an offer, take, uh, take half of whatever my kingdom is, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom. And she says, I'll take John the Baptist's head on a platter. So this is the storyline that we're at. This is the storyline of what is going on here. And this is what is happening. And in this, what we begin to see is as John is locked up in in, uh, Antipas' dungeon, there's a moment that happens that is a very poignant moment. And uh, and as we read scripture, it's just a little portion of this that we can easily miss, but I think is incredibly, incredibly important for us to understand what Luke is trying to communicate about who Jesus is. So in uh, chapter 7, verse 18, we're going to get into this. It says this, John's disciples told him about all these things. Now, all these things is referring, are, is referring to all that Jesus is doing. It is the, the, the stories of Jesus are beginning to penetrate all of this region about him healing and about him doing these great and mighty works. And so what is happening is that all of these stories uh, are coming back to John. John is in prison, but his followers, his disciples are out there and they begin to communicate to John about what Jesus is doing. Calling two of them, he sent them to uh, to the Lord to Jesus to ask, and this is an incredible question: Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? I, I believe that this is a uh, this is a, a question that should make you lean in. This is a question that should make you believe your Bible more, because this is a moment um, that should give you confidence that what you have is the truth of what actually happened. Um, Because if this is propaganda, if this is something that is only meant to be able to tell a story to convince you of something, then this is a very poor tact. To take this guy of such the stature of John the Baptist and for him to be able to ask the doubting question of Jesus, hey, are you really the one? Are, Are you really the one Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Um, No literature that is meant to only be uh, some sort of a propaganda literature would ever seek to have one of the main characters ask this question. But it is what Luke is trying to get us to understand because this sets up what Jesus says. But I want us to get that this is a question that's fundamental, I think, to all of us at some point in our life that at some point we have this moment that there's a gap between the expectation that we have of Jesus and the reality of Jesus in our life that there's something that happens. So we see that John the Baptist out of all the people, right, we, see, we read that, um, that John the Baptist in this moment had more of a recognition of who Jesus was before he was born. It says this, he kicked in his mother's womb when Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant with Jesus, came near. That there was a recognition of who Jesus was even before he was born. And, that, and as he lived his life, there's the most significant moment that we begin to to see, probably in his ministry, where he baptizes Jesus, right? And in that moment, we begin to see God show up in this crazy, amazing way, and God reveals that this is my son. And, and all of these things in the life of John should radically point to the fact that he should have confidence in who Jesus is. But in this moment, he is in jail, and Jesus is doing crazy stuff. He's radically reforming. He has power over matter, time, space. He has, uh, he's revealing the fact that he is demonstrating his lordship over everything except for John's circumstance. And when we begin to ask the question, we begin to think, okay, if Jesus is the Lord of all of this, if Jesus is actually the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we begin to believe this power, then why isn't God doing something about the situation that's happening in my, my life? Every single one of us, I think, at some point, when we're really honest, have asked the question, as John did, Are you the one who is to come or should I expect something else? Like, is this really the thing that I should orient my life around? Is this really the thing that is going to be that which deeply affects my soul, that changes my life? And and I love this because I I believe if you're, again, like me, that this puts us into a place where when we begin to, to go face to face with the unmet expectations that we might have of Jesus, this is where our faith is is built. This is where we begin to realize what is it in the depths of our spirituality. What's what rests in our heart in terms of our understanding of Jesus. And this is what Luke is trying to get us to uh, get us to come face to face with. Is what do we believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus to us? And he brings this out and he tells the story of the most famous um, follower of Jesus, right, John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Jesus. He's he's called to this. He has a place that is very defined as. Jesus begins to say, this is who he is. And even John has the question that we have. Where was God when I needed him? Are you going to deliver? There's some pretty big promises. Are you going to make good on them? And he sends that to Jesus. In verse 20, we begin to see what Jesus says. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus is dramatically saying, yes, I am the one. He's dramatically saying, yes, I am the one. And in this, he's quoting uh, Isaiah 35. And Isaiah 35 is a messianic text. It's, it's proclaiming what they should expect of Jesus It's beginning to define what the Son of Man, as he comes to earth, is going to accomplish. All these things, it's beginning to point to Jesus and saying, these are the stories that are real, John, that I'm coming to make everything right, that God's in charge and the plan is on track. But then Jesus says this statement. He says this, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, and this is where the story gets fascinating, because he's saying all of this stuff, and he's putting all of this together, and then he's saying this statement: "Blessed is the person that doesn't stumble on account of me." And as we press into this text, we have to ask ourselves the, the logical question: um, What does he? What does he mean when he says, "Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble because of me?" Because really. We can't really imagine someone saying, hey, there's too many blind people that are receiving sight and I'm having a crisis of faith. Uh, or if one more person who is paralyzed begins to rise and walk, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Nobody loses their faith or falls away because of miracles. So why would Jesus say to John, you will be blessed if you don't fall away on account of me? And this is the powerful thing that Jesus says that is often too radical and too extreme for our current sanitized view of Christianity that we, we typically have in our churches. Jesus is saying this basically, John, I'm not coming for you. I'm not getting you out of prison. I'm not sparing your life. Yes, I have done this and even more than this for many people. But your path is going to be different from their path, John. And let me tell you, you will be blessed if this does not cause you to fall away. And this is this mind-blowing reality of Jesus who begins to refocus Um, expectations to be able to repoint expectations and there's this precarious moment um, i I think in all of our lives when we have to figure out what kind of christianity what brand what version of christianity are we going to to have are we going to take the version of christianity where we place jesus on our terms and say this is the kind of jesus that i want and i want him to act like this and does this are we going to take jesus on his terms Are we going to let Jesus define the terms of his kingship in the world and his kingship in our life? Are we going to say, I want you on these terms? And it's the collision of really what Jesus is. And what John is trying to say and what Luke is trying to say, sorry, not not, not John, but Luke is trying to help us to understand is that when Jesus comes into the world, he begins to demonstrate that he's fulfilling all of these things, that God is in charge, that all of a sudden everything is being reformatted around the kingdom of God. And yet this reformation around the kingdom of God is also a reformation on the definitions of what we find as good, right, fair, and just And in this, this is so powerful because we get to see that Jesus is helping us to say who gets to really define what is good? Who gets to define what is really fair? Who gets to define what blessing really is? And the definition and who creates those definitions are foundational to our understanding of who God is. Because if we walk through life and say, this is what I define as good we begin to say this is the terms that you have to fit into, Jesus. You have to fit into these things. This is what is fair, that I receive this because I give this. That this is what is just, and this is what blessing is, and let me define to you what blessing is, and let me define to you what it would be for me to be blessed, and it is in this box. And the question really is, is where does Jesus fit within that, and is that the Jesus who's defined that? Or if we said, "Hey, this is the kind of faith I want, and here's what I want it to look like," and and this is what I love about Jesus is that this text tells us that this that it reveals to us that Jesus never lets us settle uh, settle for an emaciated version of His kingdom. He never lets us settle for something that is less than the full, complete truth. That Jesus doesn't say just that's good enough. Jesus says, let me completely define how radically shifting this is from your current view of what good is and what right is. And, and I think this is key for us to ask the question, is there a place in our life where we haven't let God define what is good or define what a blessing is? Is there a place in our life where we've said, hey, this, this is the, I'm trying to get you to fit into my understanding of a blessed life whether that's a financial blessing, whether that's a vocational blessing, that whether that's what I expected my marriage to be, what I expected my work to be, what I expected my friendships to be, what I expected all of this to be. And here's where I'm praying for you to fit into my box. I'm praying that this would be the kind of comfort level that I would have in my life. This would be the kind of security level that I would have in my life. This is the kind of stuff that I expected for you to provide if I put my hope and trust in you. That that's the deal, Jesus. And here's what happens is Jesus just absolutely does n- never lets us define the terms of Him being Savior of our life and the Savior of the world. Here's what He says. This says in verse 24, after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet, it is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Now, what what is happening here? is that Jesus is helping them to understand that John had a very specific role to play in the kingdom of God. John reveals that, uh, that really the king of the Jews was no king at all, this Herod Antipas. The Jews couldn't put faces on their coins, and so what they would do is they would um, be, they would create a symbol. And so what Jesus is talking about is this idea of this reed in the wind, that, that what is happening is that this coin, uh, it had a reed that was uh, was around the rivers, and that was what stood for Herod Antipas. What did you go out there to see? A reed swayed by the wind, and he's connecting these two things together that indeed John was playing a specific role in being able to redefine what it meant for Jesus to fulfill the the entire story of what it means to be king of the Jews. And it took John and his role in a specific way to be able to lay out those two things. So he's connecting these men together and beginning to say, he's pointing to a specific part of the story that John the Baptist plays. In verse 28, he says this, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So so John is, 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 is helping them to see this. I am the king of everything, that I'm bringing heaven to earth, that God is in charge now. And what is happening in this is that, uh, that the expectations that John has, that the expectations that, that I would remove the, the, him from this prison, that I would remove him from this, um, this dark place, that's not going to happen but the reality is is that John has a very specific role to play. And there's no one greater if we take the kingdom if we take this earthly kingdom. But when we begin to reformat it around the kingdom of God, John is just doing what everyone else is called to do as well. And that's to begin to see themselves in light of what Jesus has come to do. And here's where we see this kind of cryptic statement, but it is a powerful statement being talking about the change that happens in the kingdom of God when he comes. That Jesus is helping us to see something very important, that the way that we see the world and everything that makes sense of our definitions of right, of good and fair, everything that we put our hope in is radically transformed in the kingdom of God. That Jesus is revealing that when God's in charge here on earth, it's not just a little bit better. His goal isn't to make our lives just a little bit more manageable, His point is to completely reframe the way that we see everything. This is so powerful for us to begin to see. This is what Jesus is trying to help us to understand. To be able to to understand that It's not just our faithfulness to God that will create a favorable circumstance in this world. And if we think that if I'm just faithful to Jesus, then I'll get a special privilege somehow, and he'll be able to, to, to kind of work his power to make my life better. And if that's what we believe about Christianity, we've radically missed the point that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things, that he breaks the power of money by telling us to live generously. He breaks the power of of security by his radical sacrifice. He breaks the power of guilt and shame by his unconditional offer of grace. He breaks the power of sin by giving us a new heart and ultimately he breaks the power of death by his own death. He uses his death to break the power of death over us. And so we sing you know the song Oh Death where is your sting? And this is what Jesus is trying to help us to understand. That John, when he begins to see this whole thing, is still missing the point. That the worst thing that can happen to him is not to be killed. That what Jesus is doing to reform the entire world is is significantly deeper than that. He says this, that it's more important for us to participate in bringing about the kingdom that breaks the power of death in someone's life than it is for us just not to die. His role to play... And being able to bring about ultimate life in this world is more important than whether life or death happens in this world. So don't fear death, fear meaninglessness. Because Jesus has already overcome death. (coughs) Don't fear the bad things that can happen in your life, fear living your life without meaning. And so Jesus is radically helping us to know that in our, our economy of the world, we see ourselves, we see this world, and we see all that's happening, and, and the ultimate price to pay is the death of our life, and Jesus is and I want you to lift up your, your eyes to this, that my point coming here is to bring you eternal life, and so death doesn't have the sting, and so if you begin to remove the power of the fear of death in your life, you can actually begin to start living, and you can live in a way that is radically different in the world around you. You can begin to live your life in a way where fear doesn't have a grip on your life, where shame doesn't have a grip on your life, where guilt doesn't have a grip on your life. But I need you to get that this is a different way of life, that this is a different way of seeing the world around you. I heard a story this week, um, a, a guy told about, uh, about someone who had... Uh, who uh, did an assignment and got the assignment back from their teacher. And as they looked over the assignment, they saw all of this great uh, stuff written on their paper. Um, great content, um, great, uh, great synthesis, great p- perfect bibliography, right? Perfect end notes in all this. And, and, then, uh, and, and there's a big fat F on, on, on the paper, and so this guy goes and, to the professor and says, hey, it, you, you say all of this stuff that, um, good job on all of these things. And he's like, yeah, you did all that great. I said, well, why did I get an F? He said, it's the wrong assignment. It's the wrong assignment. <laughs> Here's what I hope that we don't do in our life. That we don't begin to do the best that we can trying to work for something that's actually the wrong assignment. That we don't begin to spin our our, our wheels and put effort towards a version of Christianity that's actually the wrong assignment. And in this, here's where we get um, this this reality of uh, kind of what we do, and why is this good news to us? Here's a few things that I want you to receive. The first thing is this, in the kingdom of God, significance is valued above security significance is valued above security that if your eternal secure if your eternity is secure you don't have to live an earthly life focus on security when you follow Jesus on his terms eternity is secure and that's promise, but not earthly security let me say that again when you follow Jesus on his terms eternal eternal security is promised but not earthly security God's will for our lives is less about our comfort and more about our contribution that God would never choose safety at the cost of significance that God created you so that your life would count not so that you would count the days of your life Jesus deaths wasn't to uh just to free us from dying but to free us from the power of death and the fear of death and John is fearful in this right he has a moment where he's saying this But Jesus says, I'm doing something that won't stop people from dying, but will remove the power and the fear of death in their life. And and I want us to understand this. This is what's powerful about Luke helping us to see this, because I believe that there is a sanitized, domesticated version of Christianity uh, that goes something like this, that Jesus died and he rose from the dead so that you can have a life of endless comfort, security, and indulgence. Like, this is the point. Even even more simply, if you just simply confess that you're a sinner and believe in Jesus, you'll be saved from the torment of eternal hellfire, and you'll go to heaven when you die. And I want you to get that that is part of the story, and that's a significant part of the story. And the first step is to be able to understand those things, but we miss... The grand narrative of what Jesus has come to offer when we begin to realize, or when we begin to oversimplify that and sanitize that and just begin to believe that it's just here that Jesus came for my comfort and my security and not to ultimately reframe my entire view of the world. So he says to John, All of those things are true, but I'm not coming for you because there's something greater, there's something bigger. Both of those things, they they radically simplify our life. When we begin to think that's all that Jesus came to do, they domesticate life. And Jesus called us to live a life that's oriented to a different kingdom. Jesus Jesus understood that his purpose was not just to save us from pain and suffering, but from meaninglessness. And John has a role in that story. Man, I want you to get that it is much, much better for you to live a life of significance and meaning than just a life of comfort and security. And when you begin to do that in the kingdom of God, you're promised that you will be able to see God manifest himself in a way that is meaningful and significant. But all throughout this, in, in fact, when we begin to read Hebrews 11, we begin to see that it is not safe, that it is not secure, And so I don't know how that is the pervasive understanding that we have of what it means to follow Jesus. It's simply not in the terms that Jesus said. The next thing I want you to receive is that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, love and sacrifice are inseparable. That Jesus embodies this on the cross. That love is expressed through sacrifice and servanthood. That this is what it looks like. That these are the things that are put together. That it's sacrifice and servanthood. And, and we have to ask ourselves, could there be something that's more valuable than just an easy life? And I want you to get, for those of you who have engaged in the, in the journey of marriage and the journey of parenthood, that that is not one that has made your life necessarily, especially if you're a parent. Um, and we're going to get to celebrate kids, right? That um, is not something that... W- That is going to make your life easier. I don't think any parent would say, you know what? My life was really difficult, and then I had kids, and it got so much easier, right? I was was going along, and everything was just really tough, and my time was compressed, and then I had kids, and it's like I had all this extra time and all of this extra emotional energy. It's just not how it happens. But ultimately, I believe that every parent would say, that is one of the most significant parts of my life. I would even say the same thing, that we don't realize how selfish we are until we get married, right? We don't realize how many issues we have until there's someone that's that close to our life pointing them out. Maybe not intentionally, but just as you begin to rub shoulders with someone that close to your life, you begin to realize some fundamental things about yourself. And I want you to get that this is fundamentally a part of the story that Jesus has made you for, that the things that are worth the most are things that you have to sacrifice for. So when you begin to think through the idea of Christianity as being able to say, I'm going to, I want this to be deeply significant and very little sacrifice, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. They're inseparable. That Jesus from the very beginning said love and sacrifice, they're connected. Last thing, I want you to get that your life is unique before God and your path is yours alone. That your life is unique before God and your path is yours and yours alone. One of the most difficult things for us when we begin to get into places where we ask questions of God is that we begin to have our eyes diverted to the people around us. That we begin to look around and we begin to say, hey God, this is what's happening in their life. Why can't that happen in my life? This is what's going on in their life. I really want that to happen in my life. This is what's going on, and I really want for you to manifest that. Why aren't you fair? Why is it that this happened to me, but not to them? And we begin to ask those questions, and we begin to ask, why is that the case? In John 21, we begin to see uh, Peter ask this very thing to Jesus. And, and what happens is, uh, is he begins to say this, hey, when you were younger, starting in verse 18, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished, but when you're old, you're, you're going to stretch out your hands and gird you, and other people will carry you where you do not wish. So eventually, Peter is going to a cross of his own. So he's telling them, hey, this is the future for you, that there's gonna be a sacrifice that you make, Peter. And here's Peter's response. I think it's a lot like our response. He says this, Peter looks at John, John the disciple, not John the Baptist, who's with him, and he says, what about him? And Jesus says this, what does it matter to you what path I have to, for him? You worry about you. You follow the path." that I have for you, and that path is to a cross. And the moment Peter began to realize this, right, this is a transformational moment, that he began to recognize that what God was doing in his life was not going to be one of security, but of significance, and when he began to walk into that, that began to be something that radically transformed his life, and he began to say, okay, this is the new reality, and as he walked to this, we begin to see a guy who is a fisherman a guy who is unqualified to be uh, a movemental leader we begin to see God do something really significant with him in his life and I want you to get that all that was was a simple answer to the question will you let me take control and if so I'll do something radically significant with your life I like to say there's a significant there's a vast difference between being successful and significant and you can be very successful in your life and ultimately insignificant. And I want you to get that Jesus is trying to help us to understand what significance is and trying to be able to say at the end of your life. And here's what's going to happen. The longer you live, the more you'll look back with regrets that when you look back, you'll say, I wish I would have. And the moment you begin to say, "Okay, Jesus, you get control is the moment you begin to start living a life that doesn't look back with regrets and begins to look forward with hope. This last weekend, uh, I got to spend time with our newest church plant in Monmouth, Oregon. And I got to be there um, with them last last Sunday. And I got to, uh, to be in their midst and, and to speak to them for the first time uh, Is actually the first time I'd ever been to their city. Um, and and I, that might be crazy, the power expanding, that I've never been to the city that we have a church in. Um, but I went there and I got to see, uh, there was about a hundred people there. They'd been going for about a month. And, uh, and afterwards um, I was standing kind of next to the info table and I had um, about a dozen people come and uh, and these people began to tell me the stories of how they found Jesus, how they found Christianity, uh, or, or how they found community, how they found church. And, and this was what was crazy is they began to, uh, you know, tell me their story. And I began to say, hey, how, how did you get connected to this thing? And they told me about stories of people who moved from... All of our other sites, but specifically from Ellensburg, to go plant there, and they begin to tell about meeting this person in their dorm room, or meeting this person on campus, or meeting this person at a at a, an event that they held, and to begin to say it was this person who connected me to the story of Jesus. And as they're telling me that story, here's what's profound about this: that the person that they're talking about has some. There, for a few of them. There are people that said the exact same thing to me when I was in Ellensburg. That they came up to me and said, this is amazing. I got connected to this church. I got connected to Jesus. And it's because of this person. And that person moved from Pullman. And I remember, and this is how old it is, hearing that person say, I think that I want to be able to move my life to Ellensburg. And so I'm in this moment, and I'm recognizing the story that these people have had, where they begin to say, I'm going to sacrifice to go out. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to transfer schools. I'm going to, uh, to not pursue the this, this secular job. I'm going to um, move away from my friends. I'm going to go to a, a, a school that's, that's very different. And all of a sudden, you begin to see the pathway of the story. And as I'm talking to this person, it's almost emotionally overwhelming because they're telling me about how their life has been changed because of someone who told me how their life had been changed because of someone who made this significant choice to be able to say, I'm not going to orient my life around what just the world says is successful, but I want to do something that's significant. And I got to see over and over what those stories look like for people who said yes to crazy things. And to be able to see this person um, in Monmouth, Oregon, who had been saying, "God, if you're real, bring someone into my life," and all of a sudden, someone comes. But they only came because minute by minute they begin to say, hey, "God, where you're at, and I want to do something that's significant." So I want to ask us to simply reject this idea, this sanitized, domesticated version of Christianity that will cause you to stumble when you come to Jesus on his terms. And that's hard. And that's why we don't like to preach this context in this, this, this place in this uh, part of scripture because we have to respond and ask the question this. If this was Jesus' res- response to you, would this cause you to stumble or to feel blessed? If you were in John the Baptist's shoes and you heard Jesus say, I have all this power, I'm doing all this good, but I'm not coming for you. What would you believe about Jesus? Would you believe what a blessing because I get to play a role specifically in his kingdom to do something significant? Or would you say, I'm bitter, are you really even the Christ? Because if so, this is what I need you to do in my life. And that's the crux of how do we see Jesus. That's the crux of whether we're going to go to Jesus on his terms or our terms. And so this, are we going to, this final thing, are we going to allow God to make the definitions? Are we going to allow God to create the definitions of what is good? Because we've all had pain. Are we gonna blame God? Are we gonna be able to see that through the pain there might be something beautiful? There might be something significant? The opportunities that may have come and gone in our lives, the things that we wanted to happen that didn't happen, is that right? Is that fair? Is that just? What do we do? If we're there on the other side of this, how do we see Jesus? It's a profound question. Let me pray for you. God, I ask that as we begin to think through this idea of who you are, Lord, that you'd give us courage to be able to say where we have defined what right and wrong is based upon our terms and not your terms. God, I ask that you would help us to search deep within our hearts. (laughs) And I pray today that we would respond to you as you are on your terms. And that we would allow our hands to begin to let go of those things where we've said, I'll only follow you if you'll do this. Help us to realize the cost of significance if we operate like that with our Savior. In your holy name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.